If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this December 10th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. In hour number two, normally we provide you with an interesting and compelling guest to talk about whatever I find to be relevant or whatever is in the news. Unfortunately, this week is not going to be one of those weeks. I tried real hard, thought I was going to be able to get uh, Jake Tapper from CNN, but uh, CNN put the kibosh on that. Uh, Tom Mesereau, the famed attorney, had a, a trial in San Diego, and he had to take a rain check. And uh, Claire Berlinski, who wrote a great column about the moral panic of uh, sex abuse, is in Paris, and we weren't able to make that work from a time perspective. So in lieu of a guest for this week, I'm going to tell one of my top, I would say at least five, you can decide that you're right, uh, but at least top five stories of my life. My life has had a lot of ups and downs, a lot of pain, uh, a lot of suffering, some good moments too. But if nothing else, at the end of it, I've got stories. And one story that I've been promising to tell, but I've never done in its totality, ever. And that's one of the great things about the podcast format, is that you're able to tell stories that for more than eight minutes at a time without having to take a commercial break. And, um, and this is one of those stories that definitely is going to require more than, than eight minutes. But I've never told the full story of my Louisville, Kentucky experience. And there's a couple reasons why I'm doing it. It's not just because we don't have a guest, uh, but it's also because it's, one, a great story. Two, it's very relevant to a lot of what's going on. It, it's relevant, uh, I think you're going to see, with regard to this uh, sex abuse hysteria. It's relevant with regard to how it is I came to view the news media, how I came to view our judicial system, how I came to view people, how do I came to view women. <laughs> uh, and, and also just it, it's a remarkable story with regard to life and how things end up turning out much differently than you ever would have expected for better or for worse. So, with that said, here's the story of Louisville, Kentucky. Now, for, for proper context, up until uh, 2002, my career had been a series of disasters. I, I had been in it as a television sportscaster and radio talk show host. I had gotten fired numerous times, uh, mostly in, in a combination of things that I had done that were stupid, but also me getting screwed. But basically, I was a square peg in a round hole world. That, that's, that's the way I viewed myself. Not, uh, not making excuses at all, because I made a lot of mistakes. But I just became convinced that I was just never going to fit in this world, especially the media world. And this was back in the late 1990s and early 2000s when things weren't nearly as insane as they are today. So I knew I had some ability to do this, whatever this is, commentary, but it just never was finding the right place. And I, I, I thought uh, after 9-11, when I got a job at a TV network 
in Philadelphia, my hometown, that I might have found the right place because I was um, like a TV co-host, writer, producer for a television show that was horrible (laughs) until I got on it, and I basically saved it. But the problem was the host of that show, a woman by the name of Lynn Doyle, who was married to a Comcast executive, uh, took a liking to me in a way that she shouldn't have. <laughs> and I didn't reciprocate, and I ended up getting fired. So that, and, and so I understand the, the, the issue of sexual harassment a little bit better than, than most people probably perceive that I do, although it, bl- it blew my mind that that's what was happening. I was so naive. I had no freaking clue because I grew up as a super geek. I, I mean, I, I grew up having less than zero game with women, a skinny kid who was nerdy as hell, not great looking. You know, I tried to play sports, was never great at sports, was not cool. I had nothing. And I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, so <laughs> that that made it even worse. And then so I go to Georgetown University, and I'm totally lost. I mean, I get run over by the Mack truck of estrogen. I have no clue at all what I'm doing with women. Zero. So the idea that you know, by my 30s, and, and I don't want to, you know, <laughs> pretend that I hadn't dated at all. I'd dated a lot of different women, and having been in television, you know, women will occasionally find you attractive even if you're a super geek. Uh, that's just the way it works. By the way, you know, back in the day, that used to be okay. It <laughs> used to be okay for, for women to find you attractive because uh, you were perceived as some sort of a celebrity or something. Now I understand that's sexual abuse. I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. I had no idea that I was a sexual abuser, but um, apparently that's the case. So I, I digress. So ha- having a woman be attracted to you because of your position is now verboten. So anyway, um, so I had that happen, but I never really, you know, I had never uh, overpunted my coverage. I knew I knew my place in the dating game pretty well. I, I had over I, I had punted my coverage one time for a very 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 brief moment. Uh, if anybody was ever a fan of a very old HBO show show called G String Divas, they did a documentary back in like the late nineties on a Philadelphia high class strip club. And there was a stripper on that show by the name of Ginger. And Ginger liked my radio show in Philadelphia. And she took a real big liking to me. And, um, and she was brilliant. She was fucking crazy. But she, she was brilliant and hot as hell. And, um, and that lasted about 15 seconds, maybe literally, about 15 seconds. Uh, because I knew I was way in over my head. Way, 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 way in over my head. So I, I was always a monogamous, you know, girlfriend type of guy. And that was my, you know, that was where I was with women. And I understood my place. And, and that's where the way it was. So I was shocked when that whole Lynn Doyle thing happened. I'm like, seriously? What? You're, you're, you're in love with me? What? What? That doesn't make any sense. Well, as fate would have it, as I got, literally as I got fired, <laughs> Uh, and got a small settlement because of my, I guess you would call it my sexual harassment claim, which I absolutely should have never abandoned. I got horrible legal representation. I had them by the balls because of who she was married to. Uh, and in this environment, I probably would have made a million dollars. But back in 2002, I guess it was, it was a different world. Anyway, literally as that was happening, I got a job as a radio host in Louisville, Kentucky. At WHAS AM in Louisville. Now, they say that ignorance is bliss. And there's never been a better example of that in my life than when I went to Louisville, Kentucky. Because I had, you know, I'd worked in some pretty major markets, but Philadelphia was the largest market and done radio in Philadelphia and done some TV in Philadelphia and been around the world. And so, you know, I was... (laughs) I was, I would say, certainly at the the cutting edge of of talk radio. I, I knew the game. I knew how it worked. And going to Louisville in 2002 was a lot like uh, being Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future, because <laughs> while I was doing early 2000s post 9/11 talk radio. 
And WHAS, a stodgy old AM radio station, heritage station in, in Louisville, which was like the number one station in town or number two, depending on what time of year, with an, with an FM country station. They were basically doing like early 1980s radio. So I go into Louisville and I'm a bull in the metaphorical China shop, but in a good way at first, because I'm the talk of the town. But I'm so naive and I'm so sheltered and I'm such in such a, bell, a bubble, I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm just doing my thing. I go into Louisville and I can remember like on day two, <laughs> day two, I start going after Muhammad Ali who's from Louisville, because they were creating with tax dollars a, uh, a center there, named for him. And I'm like, are you kidding for this, this draft dodger racist? And people are going bananas. Like, who the hell is this guy on the radio? The WHS has never done this before. So I, you know, think about like what Howard Stern did, I guess, you know, at the, in New York uh, back in the, the 80s. That was, I guess, what I must have been like in Louisville. But I had no idea. Until the ratings came. And the ratings were insane. Like crazy ratings. People, most people have no idea what radio ratings are like. But the, the stage, we were doing not just number one in my time slot, which was early mornings. I remember in, in, we were getting like 15% of the entire radio audience of Louisville, Kentucky, which is unheard of, listening to AM talk radio. It was ridiculous it was it was it just flat out ridiculous it was sir absurd and part of this perfect storm was that the democratic governor governor Patton, at the time got caught in a sex scandal right after i started on the air so it wasn't all about me there was definitely some news that was that was helping but um i was all over him for that i mean i was torching him in a way that you know whas had never done before so Everything was going incredibly well, which always makes me nervous because <laughs> I, I, I'm not used to that. And I'm sure it's my Catholic upbringing. Maybe I still have some Oedipal conflict, uh, conflict issues or conflict uh, in the English language, Oedipal conflict issues with my mother, my father. I don't know what it is, but uh, success always makes me nervous. Everything is awesome. Yeah, that, that makes me nervous. And uh, so I was, I was a little nervous about it, but I was, I was okay with it. I mean, you know, I, I was ready to wa- ride this wave. I'd suffered enough. You know, I, my, my Catholic guilt was somewhat in check. And one of the interesting things about Louisville, Louisville is a fascinating town. Uh, one, because it's a city that uh, literally focuses on two minutes out of the year. The two minutes being the Kentucky Derby. And, and that's not cliche. That's other than Louisville basketball, which is big. But for all intents and purposes, the Kentucky Derby is, it, you know, it's like Louisville's Christmas. Everything is focused on that. It's a month-long festival leading up to it. And that two minutes is everything. And the other thing about Louisville, I presume it's still the way today. I don't know. But when I was there... There was a bizarre phenomenon with regard to demographics, and that is because it's really a family town. There's nobody single in their 30s. Nobody. I mean, there, there's there, the, the dating pool of non-married, no-children, educated people in their 30s didn't just not exist – it didn't exist to the extent where everybody knew it didn't exist. Like it was something everyone just simply acknowledged. Now, here I was at that time in my 30s, mid-30s. And, of course, you know, I'm the new guy in town and I'm the guy everyone is talking about. So inherently, everybody wants to try to set me up, right? This is what they do when their, their lives are over with, they're married, <laughs> whatever. You, you, you either want to set somebody else up or... What have you? Or and it wasn't just a setup situation. It was bizarrely to me. This was like a matter of public interest, and I would talk about it on my show from time to time, mainly just to have something to discuss that was interesting. But it was, it was such a matter of public interest that people on other shows on the radio station would discuss my dating life. 
which again was bizarre to me. I'm like, huh? I am not that interesting. Folks, can't we find something better to talk about than who I'm dating? So anyway, one day I'm coming into work, and the morning host at WHS was a complete buffoon, a guy by the name of Bob Sokoler. And Bob was a I, – I, I guarantee I, – I, I'm quite certain that Bob was one of these scoundrels who would uh, try to, to use his position as the morning host to, to uh, you know, get sex with anybody that would be willing to have sex with him. And so I didn't trust him at all. Um, and, and he and I had actually had some battles on the air. Like I would mock him from time to time. Well, one day I'm driving in and he's talking about a brand new host on the Fox television affiliate in Louisville who has just taken over the morning show there. And he clearly likes her, uh, cause you know, she's smoking hot and her name is Darcy DeVita. I don't know if- I can't imagine that's her real name, but that's the name she was going by. Sounds like a stripper name, doesn't it? But but she was the morning host on the Fox affiliate in Louisville. And he starts talking about this Darcy DeVita and how how, uh, attractive she is. And she appears to be in her 30s. And boy, John Ziegler ought to be dating her. I'm like, oh, God, is this is this is this bozo really going to do this seriously? And in my sense was he was actually in a weird way, trying to hit on her over the air by using me as cover. That's what I thought he was doing. Anyway, uh, so this becomes a topic, and I, you know, I, I checked Darcy DeVita out, and sure enough, she's hot. She, she doesn't look like a normal television personality. She looks, uh, she actually looks exactly like an NBA dancer, which is, I mention that because that supposedly is what she had done previously. <laughs> She was an NBA dancer for the Chicago Bulls, but much like everything else regarding Darcy DeVita, I was never quite sure that that was the case. <laughs> there, there was some evidence that that was the case, but I was never quite sure that that was true. But that was, that was part of the bio, that she had been a Chicago Bull dancer. And she definitely looked like she could have been a Chicago Bull dancer. So anyway, long story short, a friend of mine at her TV station, guy the name guy by the name of Jim Bullet, decides to set us up. And I'm like, okay, cool, sure, great. She she's hot. She seems fun. You know, Jim's a fun guy. Jim's kind of like the goofy morning guy type of deal. And uh, so we go out, and we go out one night, and we hit it off. Amazing, like crazy amazing. I think I had had her on my radio show first as a, hey, inter- you know, introduce you to Louisville type of thing. Here's Darcy DeVita. And so we we had hit it off there. But when we went out on like a double, I don't think it was a double date, whatever it was, we went out with a bunch of people. We really hit it off. And I'm like, this is crazy. Why in the world is, is this woman into me? This makes no sense at all. Uh, but she was seemingly at least doing a hell of an acting job that she was really into me. And so we started dating and it was fun and it was going along decently. Although, you know, there were some things that were weird. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, But by and large, you know, I was like, wow, this is awesome. You know, you know, everything is awesome. (laughs) So then one day uh, I have a comedian on the show. And before we get on the air, the comedian happens to mention that they had just done a bit on the Fox morning show on television. I said, oh, really? And he had no, he's from out of town, obviously. He's not a local comedian. He, you know, one of these people that comes in for three nights and leaves. And he says, yeah, the female host there, man, she is quite a piece of work. I said, oh, really? I didn't say anything about <laughs> the fact that I was dating her. And he, he, he proceeds to talk about how she had gone out on a date the night before and uh, she was complaining about the, the level of men in Louisville and I hadn't gone out on a date with her the night before. <laughs> and, um, and so this was like this hilarious moment, this radio moment, which of course I used on the air immediately because, you know, it's all about what's on the air. It's all about the content. So my, my recollection is we went right on the air and I immediately started to ask him live on the air because he had no idea the significance of this to start talking about what had happened when he was on the Fox television affiliate just before he came over to my studio. And so on the air, he starts to reveal 
that Darcy DeVita is cheating on me, <laughs> which was radio gold, right? I mean, just fantastic stuff. Uh, but I'm also, you know, because I'm a human being, I'm also pissed off, uh, which, you know, can happen from time to time with me. If anyone knows, <laughs> knows me, I, I can get pissed off when, when the circumstances are right. And when I'm pissed off, look out. Because uh, you don't want to, you do not want that. You do not, you do not want my wrath when I have reason to be pissed off. And so I'm pissed. And I, I don't even remember exactly what I said on the air, but I'm sure it was not uh, pretty. Now, uh, interestingly, because this is the way things work uh, with male female relationships, this seemed to make Darcy like me more. <laughs> Which is just so effed up. But that's that's the world we live in, especially with hot women. And uh, so so we kept dating, but now I'm really very suspicious. But things are going downhill, and, um, and we end up uh, breaking up. I don't even remember who broke up with who. I, I, I don't even remember that part. But I, I knew that, I, that she was bad news, regardless of how hot she was. Um, and, and we stopped dating, but we, but importantly, we had kept in touch. And in fact, at one point she had, um, asked me to be a big brother, to be part of the big brother program for a, for a little uh, African-American kid by the name of Michael Wilson, who I just loved to death. And he, when he, when I brought him into that radio studio, it was probably one of the highlights of my entire career. Cause I think I had made that kid's life being on that radio station uh, with me that day. And so I was, you know, I was glad she asked me to do it, and I was thrilled to do it, uh, even though you know, that was another whole story for another day. But that, <laughs> but that didn't end up going the way that I wanted to. It had nothing really to do with Darcy. And then even at, at, at a later point, uh, I think it was during the Kentucky Derby uh, Festival, I ended up sleeping at her place one more time. And uh, so there was still some, some remnants of the affair uh, going on. But eventually that petered out. And I still had some resentment, but I also knew and I had predicted on the air that she was going to get fired because she was terrible. And I had said this on the on WHS. I had said she will get fired because she is terrible. So I'm doing my show and I don't even know how much time passed, but uh, it wasn't that long. Sure enough, she gets fired. And uh, and I've only been in Louisville for a little over a year. It was an incredibly eventful year because I'm, I'm also doing a TV show at this point. I'm doing a TV show with a guy named John Yarmouth, who's now the congressman from Louisville and one of the top-ranking Democrats in the House of Representatives and probably will end up being a House impeachment manager when <laughs> they take back over the House in 2019. He was my co-host. He's also still to this day one of my best friends. We've had him on the, the show and the podcast numerous times. Anyway, so things are going incredibly well. In fact, they're actually going too well. Because when things are going too well, not only do I get nervous, but also you get overconfident. And you start thinking, you know, that you don't have to be as careful as you ordinarily would be. And as fate would have it, and it's just incredible to think about the level of fate that's involved in this story. And I'm not talking about, like, God-dictated fate, because I don't believe in that. But just in the, in the general concept of fate, of how, how, how my life and so many other lives were impacted by just extraneous bullshit <laughs> and just incredibly bad timing. It's just mind-blowing. So here's what happens. As fate would have it, every Friday... I did a segment on the show called Ask John Anything. And that meant exactly what it was. Ask John Anything. You could ask me anything you wanted, and I would promise a no-bullshit answer, and I would give it. And it was a popular segment. And as fate would have it, that morning, word comes out that Darcy has been fired. So I mention this on the air, and I'm actually pretty gracious because I've been fired many times, and I don't, you know, it's a rough deal, especially in the news media. And so I don't dance on her grave or anything like that. I just said, look, you know, I wish her the best. I'm sorry it happened to her. She's not very good. I don't, I don't, think we'll find, I don't even remember if I said that. But, I mean, the, the reality is I, I don't dance on her grave, but I do acknowledge that she's been fired. So we do ask John anything at the end of the show. And what are all the questions about? They're about Darcy. Because that's 
Everyone was fascinated by the John and Darcy story. So the first question, and again, this is bad fate, because if this had been the second question, I don't think anything of this, any of this happens. But it's the first question, and everything's a domino effect here. So the first question is, John, you got to tell me, were Darcy's boobs real? And I'm like, okay, how do I answer this? Because I've, I've promised an, a no-bullshit answer. It's AM radio in Louisville, Kentucky, which is not the same thing as, like, FM radio in a big market. I mean, it's very conservative. And so um, I say something to the effect of, well, look, um, let me just say that uh, whoever was responsible for her boobs um, deserves some sort of a Nobel Prize. <laughs> that's, I think that's exactly what I said, which I thought was a great answer. I was so proud of myself because... They were fake, but they were also spectacular. And so I'm effectively saying that without saying it. I'm being nice and I'm being complimentary. And the, and the, the guy appreciated the answer. And I, and I actually thought, oh, wow, I really handled that well, <laughs> which, which set me up horribly for the next question. Because the next question on Ask John Anything was, John, tell me something. Why did Darcy never wear um, skirts on the air. She always liked to wear dress slacks or something that covered her legs. And, um, and it's important to note that the, the Fox morning show had a very open set, okay? So you could see the whole body of the host. There's nothing, nothing covering their, the bottom of them, of the, of the male or female. And, uh, and as fate would have it, to use that phrase again, Darcy had told me why she never wears skirts on the air. And the reason was, was because she doesn't wear underwear. And of course, if you don't wear underwear and you're wearing a skirt and you're on live television and the camera's right there, you're, you're, you're headed for a Sharon Stone moment in basic instinct. And I basically said that. And that probably would have been fine. And that's where I should have stopped. But I didn't. And why I didn't, I'm still to this day not 100% sure. But to go back to that time period of 2003, this was an era where women, especially young women, it was becoming in vogue for women to get bikini waxes. And this was a development that I thought very highly of. <laughs> I thought this was fantastic. And I really appreciated that. And, uh, and Darcy was in that category. And it was fantastic. And so I stupidly said, but you know, if you think about it, it really wouldn't have mattered whether she was wearing underwear because she's really well kept down there and you wouldn't be able to see anything anyway. Now, I I think, my recollection is, I think I immediately said, you know what, I think I've gone too far here. And I, I believe that I then banned any further questions about Darcy. But I didn't think anything of it. I mean, I really didn't think it was that bad. It was, I knew it was true. <laughs> and I knew it was entertaining. And it was also complimentary, which is important. You know, it used to be that if you were complimentary to a woman, that mattered. But apparently not, uh, even back then, in this, at least in these circumstances. So uh, I get off the air, and I immediately can tell weird things are happening. It's funny how you can tell this in this business. But, but weird things are happening, and things that should be happening are not happening. And uh, incredibly long story short, it, it's obvious to me that there's a major problem. <laughs> of course, no one's telling me that there's a major problem. But there's a major problem. Uh, so by Monday, I get told, you know what, uh, you need to go on the air and apologize. And I'm like, okay, uh, I'll, I'll, I don't think I should need to, but okay, I'll do it, you know. But, in, but this is where, because everything was so good, it was not uh, told to me at the level of urgency that it should have been told to me how important the apology was. I was under the impression of 
okay, this is you do this. Just do this apology. Do this a favor, and everything will be fine. Now, this is where actually, had my show not been doing so well in the ratings, I would have actually been in a better position because at that point I would have thought, all right, I might be in big trouble here. I would have had no leverage, and they would have t- they would have not feared telling me make the damn apology and make it good. <laughs> But because I'm doing 15s in the ratings, I think in retrospect, they were afraid to tell me what to do. And then fate played another role. As it turned out, I had a guest. I was going to do the apology in the last segment of the show. And I had a guest that went long. And my last segment was always very short. It was a weird clock because we did the the old... um, uh, you know, the rest of the story. Remember Paul Harvey, the rest of the story? That was always the, like the last 15 minutes of my show. So we had a very short segment before that. And because the guest wouldn't shut the hell up, my even short, my short segment was even shorter than normal. So when I came back to do the apology, the apology sucked because it, I didn't have enough time to do the apology. So, but I apologized. I didn't, it wasn't like I didn't apologize. It just wasn't a good apology. And so I get off the air and my program director, Kelly Carls, who is, you know, had been there a long time and would stay there a long time, was well known in the radio industry, former host himself. Uh, he actually congratulated me, said, congratulations. Good job. We're done with this controversy. Go home, come back tomorrow. Everything will be fine. I'm like, okay, good. I even go on the afternoon show at WHAS that day, Terry Miners, who's still on the same radio station, the same uh, time slot, I believe he literally has a lifetime contract. He's a legend in Louisville. Terry Miners is his name. A guy I played a lot of golf with, thought I was really good friends with. He had me on the show to talk about the controversy. And, um, and he even did, we even did a top 10 list of like I did a top 10 list joking about it okay so this was all a big joke that's what the, that was what this how this was handled which again was in retrospect probably a mistake but that's what everyone led me to believe that it was so the next morning I come in to do my show and I'm thinking everything's normal I'm about to do the show and that I get taken off the air at the last second and I'm like uh-oh <laughs> this is this is bad. Boy, that escalated quickly. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, okay, so clearly somebody way above my program director, my boss, has spoken about what's going on here. They said, go home, come back. Uh, we'll call you back in later for a meeting. Well, I've been around the block enough to know this is really bad, and I'm, I'm about to get fired in all likelihood. Uh, and sure enough, I come back in. I get a call on the way to the studio, ironically, from the guest I had the day I was supposed to do the apology who went over uh, time and screwed up my apology, saying, uh, John, I'm really sorry to hear you got fired. I'm like, oh, that's news to me. I didn't know I got fired. Uh, so I go and I get fired. My alleged buddy, Terry Miners, on the afternoon show, already has comedy skits lined up to dance on my grave regarding my firing, which I was then quickly convinced he was actually thrilled by because I was moving in on his territory. He was no longer the guy everyone was talking about at WHAS and that uh, his friendship with me was probably far more out of convenience and, you know, one of those deals where you keep your friends close and your enemies closer type of deal. That, so th- that really, that actually pissed me off at least as much as the firing did. So anyway, I, I'm fired. We end we're, we finish up doing the TV show for a couple months. But during this time period, you know, th- it's becoming a massive controversy in Louisville. In fact, when I got home from, the, from having been fired, no exaggeration. I drive home to my apartment after getting fired. There are all three local television stations, three out of four. The only one that I think didn't was Darcy Station. The three network TV stations all have their live trucks outside of my apartment before I even get home. This is, you know, for some reason, this was a huge deal. Long story short, um, I end up getting offered a job by the same company, Clear Channel, K 
here in Los Angeles that just fired me in Louisville, which is a massive promotion, right? I'm convinced to this day the main reason why I got offered the job was that immediately after getting fired in Louisville, I left to go on a trip to get get the hell out of there. And because I left to go on a trip, I missed the initial phone call from KFI in Los Angeles. And so, therefore, I didn't return it for several days until I got back because, well, I had cell phones. They didn't have my cell phone number. They only had my home number. And, you know, this was still an antiquated age. I don't even I don't think I had my email hooked up to my cell phone back then. And so there was no way for them to get in touch with me. So this made them think that I really didn't want the job that much. (laughs) So when I called, they, I think, thought far more highly of me than they should have. And long story short, they end up hiring me in this big promotion. Now, I was sad about this because I liked Louisville, and I had actually started dating a woman named Janet who I really liked. And if I had stayed in Louisville, I probably would have ended up marrying her. She she ended up marrying somebody else and now is divorced, I believe. But I there's a very good chance if I had stayed in Louisville, I would have I would have ended up marrying her and who and probably would have been a you know, ended up being like Terry Miners and being like the, you know, the local uh, legend type of guy. Uh, of course, I would have missed out on a whole hell of a lot of interesting experiences and some good, some bad. Uh, not to mention, I wouldn't be married to my wife and have two kids. <laughs> but that's just the beginning of this. So, so I'm thinking when I go to Los Angeles that this is the end of the Louisville thing. But then Darcy DeVita files a multi-million dollar lawsuit against me. Multi-million dollars for defamation and all sorts of bullshit. And I'm like, really? Seriously? I, I, I just There's just no way that's going to stick because... First of all, she's a public figure, and therefore, not only, you know, for, for this to be defamation, what I said about her has to be false, and I have to know that it's false, and I have to do it on purpose, knowing that it's false, and there has to be damage. And, and none, of, none of this qualified, even remotely. I knew what I said was true. <laughs> no, it was complimentary. She had already been fired, so there was no damage. And so it didn't fit defamation at all so i'm not taking this seriously i'm like this is hilarious and you know clear channel is indemnifying me so i'm not that concerned about it but it's not going away and so like a year and a half later they actually set a trial date a trial date now why was the why was there a trial date there was a trial date because the judge the judge had a decision to make hmm I have this case that is really entertaining as hell that there's probably going to be a lot of local media coverage for. And I could dismiss it, which is what I should do, or I can let it move forward and let's, let's just let a jury decide. And this will be a lot of fun and I'll get a lot of attention. Gee, I wonder what a human being is going to do under those circumstances. There's no skin off of his nose for letting this go forward. He gets a couple of weeks of fun. If he doing the right thing would be to dismiss it. I mean, there was literally no basis for this case. In fact, we had her under deposition acknowledging that her boobs were fake and that she got bikini waxes. Therefore, there's no case. Because what I said is true, and truth is an ultimate defense in defamation. But we're living in la-la land, folks. This was really my first experience that made me realize, holy shit, the truth means nothing. The media is completely incompetent, and our judicial system is broken as hell. So here's what ends up happening. Not only does the the case not get dismissed, and I was naive. I, I didn't realize the impact of this at first. The trial gets scheduled for the week after the Kentucky Derby. Now, why is that important? That's really important. Because while the whole year leads up to the Kentucky Derby, after the Kentucky Derby, there's nothing going on. Basketball season is over, and it's May, which back then was still a really big, important month for sweeps ratings for local TV stations. So now my trial 
is scheduled right smack in the middle of sweeps after the Kentucky Derby. And I, I have no idea what to expect. I mean, I, in fact, I'm, I, I am, in, in retrospect, ridiculously naive about what's really going on here. I get into town, and it's like a mini O.J. Simpson situation. They, they, the media has decided that this is the most important thing to happen in Louisville other than the Derby. And as I joked numerous times during that week-and-a-half-long trial, uh, boy, I wish I had been treated half as important when I was here <laughs> as, I, as I am now when I, I don't live here, I don't work here, I haven't been here for almost two years at this point. Uh, this is just absurd. Well, as absurd as the media coverage was, what happened within the trial was even more insane because I quickly understood that this case was not about whether or not I defamed a public figure. This case was, can we convince a jury that John Ziegler is enough of an asshole that they might give me money? That's what this was about. And it didn't matter what it was going to take. It was, it was, it was, all hell was going to break loose. And if it meant that was going to be fine. Everything was on the table as far as uh, Darcy and her lawyer were concerned. And when they, they did their opening statement, one of the things they said in their opening statement of, of the many, many lies, I'm talking about crazy ass lies, was that they claimed that uh, Darcy had multiple sclerosis. You know what I'm trying to say. MS. Uh, which there's no evidence she ever had MS. But, that, uh, but she had had MS. And that when I took her to the hospital for her MS, and I remembered doing this, because she was in her, you know, she, was, she had actually been already at the hospital. She was in that, you know, hospital garb, you know, whatever they call you know, the 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 thing you wear over your clothes, uh, the gown. She was wearing the gown, and she you know, had bandages and all sorts of stuff. So she had something going on. But she had asked me to pick her up and take her back to the hospital. This was after we were dating, I think. Yeah, or it was in that interlude, that period of nebulousness, that limbo period where we were kind of dating, kind of not. And definitely after uh, the comedian had indicated to me that she was cheating on me. But, you know, she, she was kind of desperate. She needed a ride to the hospital. I'm like, sure, I'll come over. She knew my show was over. I took her to the hospital. And they said to the jury that I refused to bring her into the hospital and just dumped her off at the front of the hospital in her hospital gown as if I'm some sort of crude asshole who didn't give a shit and just said, Here, get out of my car, bitch, uh, you know, and, and drove off. And I'm like, what the fuck? First of all, what the fuck does this have to do with the defamation case? But this is not true. This is ridiculous. Well, thankfully, I had a really good lawyer, a guy by the name of Ken Sales. And I knew Ken was good at the time. In retrospect, now that I've had an interaction with a lot of really, really, really bad lawyers. Ken was a fucking genius. Because Ken was able to figure out what really happened. And this was like a Perry Mason moment. And because he figured out that, and he even had a, a deposition, a video deposition to prove it. I don't even know how he did this because I didn't figure this out. And, you know, the John Ziegler 2017 would have, I think, been able to do the math on this pretty fast. But in 2005, I guess I was still naive. Think about this. Darcy's claim is I drop her off in her hospital gown at a, at a hospital entrance without even taking her inside. Why would you do that? Why? Because I remember very specifically her telling me not to come inside. I, I don't think I've emphasized that. That's important. I remember her saying, don't, no, no, don't come inside. Just, I'll do it myself. And I'm like, they're, they're, they're turning this around on me in retrospect to make me look like a jackass. But there was a reason. The reason is the doctor that she was going to see was her boyfriend. And she didn't want us to meet and that's why she told me 
just leave me off at the entrance. And Ken, my lawyer, figured this out and got a deposition with the doctor acknowledging that during that time period, he and Darcy were dating. And that was like the, no, this again has nothing to do at all with the essence of the case. Nothing, nothing. But this is the type of thing that influences juries and probably ended up being a, a big influence on the case. But this was a, one of like a dozen bizarre chapters in this trial. In the first day, the first day, this, this thing is like, again, it's like the mini OJ trial of, of Louisville. The, her team is calling people to the witness stand, not because they have anything relevant to say, but because they're local celebrities. Literally, that's what they're doing. They're calling people to stand purely because they know that the TV stations will find it interesting. And one of the people they call is Terry Miners, my old buddy. And Terry gets up there like a drama queen that he is, pretending like he's conflicted because he loves John Ziegler, but, but you know, he, he knows John Ziegler did wrong here and he wants to tell the truth and, he, and he's pausing you know, dramatically at certain moments. I'm like, you fucking asshole. You fucking asshole. I mean, he's milking this for everything it's worth. And somehow, some way, this is how ridiculous this trial was. At some point, they introduce into evidence an email that I can't remember exactly the details, but it was something to the effect of, I had sent Terry an email about something my mother said to me, my dead mother. My dead mother had said to me about the way to treat women, something like that. And there was nothing remotely horrible or irrelevant or, and this is to Terry. This is not even to Darcy. And somehow, supposedly Terry had told Darcy about that and that this had something to do with the way I treat women. I'm like, which is insane on its face because the reason why I treat women exceedingly well is because I was very close to my mother. My mother would have killed me if I ever did anything wrong to a woman. So I'm like, I'm I'm off the charts. I'm off the charts on on how insane this is. This is these go to eleven. This I'm at eleven of of insanity right now, and uh, and this is being talked about. They're be, they're arguing. The, the the judge is arguing with the lawyer. The lawyers are arguing with the judge as to whether or not to let this email into evidence. I mean, this could not be more irrelevant to the case. It couldn't be more hearsay. It's absurd on every possible level. So here's what happens. So I turn around, and again, this is the first day, so I don't, I'm stupid and naive about the nature of the media coverage of this case. I don't even realize that the whole thing is being taped for, for, in a pool. There's a pool camera. I, I have no idea. So I turn around to my friend John Yarmouth and his wife Kathy, who are there you know, supporting me. I turn around and I say, this is ridiculous. I lie to you not. The top story on every single newscast that night was the video of me mouthing the words, this is ridiculous, as if I was referring to the entire trial or the allegations against me or whatever it was. That's what happened. That was the news story. That was the news story everywhere that day. Me saying to my friend, about an email involving my dead mother that had nothing to do with the case at all, even remotely, that this is ridiculous. And I was being kind. I should have said fucking ridiculous. I wish I had said fucking ridiculous. Because it was. And it got, even, it got worse from there. I mean, effectively, I was on trial for being a bad boyfriend. <laughs> That's, or, that, or, or that I should have been fired. In fact, I, I remember telling my lawyer, Ken, here's how you should start your closing arguments. Congratulations, you have proven that John Ziegler probably should have been fired from WHAS. Guess what? He was. Goodbye. Uh, but but the, the, the insanity never ended. Um, with regard to the media coverage, one TV station, the ABC affiliate, actually did a scientific, not an internet poll, a science, they paid for a scientific poll on whether or not I should be found guilty or not. Either should be or would be, I'm not sure which. But 
And this is a civil trial. This is not a criminal trial. This is a civil trial where she's trying to get millions of dollars for nothing with no case. And I'm just, are you kidding? This, this is, it's absurd on so many different levels. And it's now starting to get so much coverage that my father, who's living, I think, at that point, I guess he, I think he was living in Boston or Chicago. He somehow sees this online. He gets so concerned, he flies into Louisville for that weekend. He, because the, the trial got stayed over for a weekend because the judge was just enjoying it so much. And it was so obvious. It was so obvious that the judge was enjoying it because every single day he admonished the jury, don't, don't uh, make, make sure you don't read any newspapers or listen to any radio or watch any TV like I've been doing because this has been freaking awesome. I mean, that, that's, that, that's the gist of what he's doing. So my, my father is completely panicked. Oddly, I'm not as panicked because I'm still thinking that, you know, this has gone pretty well. They have no case. The law is 100% on our side. Our appeal lawyers are positive we're going to win because, I mean, this is this case is a joke. It's a complete, total joke. But, um, you know, they're, they're, they're pulling out all the stops. They're trying to make me into the worst person in the history of the world because they have no case. And so therefore they got a pound on the table and appeal to emotion and the media is buying right in. And every day the coverage is worse than it was the day before. So finally, uh, the, the case is the testimony is over and I'm feeling okay until the judge decides how he's going to give the jury their instructions. Now in a defamation case, with a public figure, the key phrase is actual malice. Now, actual malice is something that people don't understand because they think that means that you have, like, anger, right? Because that's what it sounds like, like you have malice. But what it effectively means is that what you said was untrue and you knew it to be untrue. And in a, in a case like this, the, jur- the judge is supposed to tell the jury, he's supposed to tell the jury that if what I said was true then you cannot find me liable. In fact, if I thought it was true, you cannot find me liable. Because truth is an ultimate defense. Now, if that's the jury instruction, I mean, this jury didn't look like a bunch of very bright people. But even even this jury, I'm thinking, they're going to get that. Because, I mean, that's as clear as you could possibly get. We've got Darcy admitting she gets a bikini wax and her boobs are fake. I mean, this, this, this is, it's over. That's, that's the whole case. And, um, and the judge, unbelievably, actually says to our lawyers, to, to, all, to the court, with the jury not present, you know, if I instruct the jury on actual malice, there's no way for them to find Mr. Ziegler libel. And I don't find that fair. So I'm going to remove the actual malice instruction to the jury and let them decide what they want to do. I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting there going, what the fuck is going on here? This is insane. What What the fuck? What the fuck? This is the whole goddamn case. And you're going to... So basically, what you're telling us, Judge, is you should have dismissed this a long time ago, this garbage. But because you didn't and it's gone this far, now you have to let a jury decide because it would be ridiculous for us to have gone through all this for nothing. That's what he did. And so now I'm sweating bullets. Now I'm like, I'm so screwed. I, I, there is, there's, I have no shot I, because these people are f- morons and the, the emotion has been played to and you know, I've been called every name of the book and I, I, you know, I, I'm actually preparing my post-loss press conference. I'm act, I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to handle this? And uh, and they call us back for the verdict, and you know all the the, the uh, local TV stations are there live, and um, and sure enough, much to my shock, we ended up winning on every single count, 
getting every single female vote. I think there were like at least seven or eight women on the jury because that's what Darcy wanted. But every single woman, the women hated her. <laughs> they hated her more than they hated me, which was hard, hard to imagine. Uh, but we got every single female vote. I think like on one of the uh, issues or counts, it's not really a count because it's a civil trial, but on, on one of the issues, I think maybe two of the guys pushed out <laughs> and voted against me. But you didn't need a unanimous verdict because it's a civil trial. And uh, I ended up winning unanimously. She got absolutely squat. Uh, no money. And and I actually even, the first thing I did was, after I <laughs> after I took a deep breath, I said to our appeal lawyers, I said, guys, I'm really sorry for screwing up the easiest case you would ever have had in your entire life because this would have been the greatest slam dunk appeal. In fact, there there have been legal journals written, or at least one legal journal written about this case because of the insanity surrounding this and specifically the the uh, removal of the actual malice instruction to the jury. So um, I ended up winning, and it was such a surreal situation because I, I, I remember, remember um, my side actually had a, uh, a victory party. <laughs> so the guy who fired me at WAGS is actually at our victory party. This is how... St- Bizarro world, this whole thing is. Uh, Casey uh, uh, Casey Carls or, or Kelly Carls is his name. He was actually at the victory party along with John Yarmouth, my lawyers, and some other friends. And um, and of course, the TV stations all want to talk to me. And I decided I was going to do an, a TV interview, just one. I actually I did two. I did two TV interviews. One with a guy I was friendly with, and the, one with the station that had hosted the old Ziegler and Yarmouth show. But but I got there and um, and of course those bastards they told me I was going to be on at the top and they actually held me for 15 minutes because they knew the audience would hang in there through the 15 minutes so they would get credit for the extra 15 minutes in the ratings period so I had 15 minutes to kill while my victory party is going on a couple miles away and I go outside and and I'm uh, I pass one of the um, you know, one of those newspaper boxes, which you know, har- they hardly exist anymore because newspapers hardly exist. But back in then, 2004, 2005, newspapers, especially in, in a place like Louisville, still mattered. And in the newspaper box for the Louisville Courier Journal that day, you know, it, for the, in the box, there's, a, there's a, a slot where they can put a promotion. And they had actually put promotions for that day, the day of the verdict. In every single newspaper box in Louisville, Kentucky, they put cardboard promotional pieces that said simply Ziegler versus DeVita in big letters. And I'm like, I am never, the rest of my life is never going to get more bizarre than this. But it was also a very, a, a great education that here, in what should have been my greatest victory, I actually felt horrible because I'm, I'm pissed off that the, my former TV station is fucking me around, uh, having me miss my, uh, my victory party. Because I know by the time I get back, everyone's either going to be gone or, you know, eaten or whatever. You know, that, and, and I also know that, you know, that people are never going to understand what really happened here. That they're never going to understand the truth. They're going to think that I somehow got off <laughs> uh, for some technicality or the jury blew it or, or what have you. And the, the truth meant nothing except for the fact that we won. It did mean that. <laughs> but barely. I mean, we had everything on our side. The truth on our side. The law on our side. You know, everything you could possibly imagine. And we barely won. And I just thought, wow. And this was, this again was 12 years ago. I thought, we are so screwed. I mean, if this can happen in, in this small uh, of an arena like Louisville, Kentucky, what must be going on on the national level? And it was really edifying because it, it opened my eyes to being able to see similar. This is not that unique. This is the way the game works now in this media era, and it's only gotten worse over the last 
12 years. By the way, incredibly small world story. It's, I've had a lot of small world stories, but this one is, is right up there. So I'm in Los Angeles now after the trial, and I start dating a woman who I think she lived in Brentwood. And, um, and we actually were fairly serious for a while. And she mentioned that she had a friend in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm like, oh, that's funny, because, you know, do you know my Louisville story? And she said, no. Well, what, what's your Louisville story? And I told her the Louisville story, and she goes, get out of town. And I said, why? She says, because my girlfriend from Louisville is the daughter of the judge in your case. <laughs> and, and we were going to set, there were, they were such good friends that we, they were going to set up a meeting between me and the judge, which would have been epic, uh, when he came to visit her in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, we didn't date long enough for that to ever actually happen because that would have been the ultimate exclamation point for this. The other good thing that happened out of this, and, I, and I'll, one of the few th- positives that I'll take out of it, because um, you know, even in my victory, there, were, there was very little... Uh, you know, there was very little that would be considered a, a crowning moment or a moment of jubilation or catharsis. Because I remember after the verdict, we were, we were trying to figure out who was going to take what elevator down. And Darcy's team and my team were like waiting on the same elevator and the news cameras were all around. And it was just so ridiculous. But one of the, the good things that happened was that my friend John Yarmouth, who at that time had never run for public office... He did a really great interview with one of the local TV stations where he said, you know, this was I'm really glad John won. This is an important case for free speech and the First Amendment. And he said something to the effect of, you know, John's a good friend. He's a really high maintenance friend, (laughs) but he's a good friend nonetheless. And I thought that was a perfect description (laughs) Of what it's like to be my, fr- you know, a really good friend of mine, what, what I call a, you know, a, a foxhole friend, where he's a really good friend, a high maintenance friend, but a no- good friend nonetheless. But the, the, the best part of the story is, literally one year to a day to the day of my trial verdict, John Yarmouth won the Democratic primary to be the congressman of Louisville, and he's been the congressman of Louisville ever since that day. And I thought that was really fantastic because nobody who cared about a political career would have come within 100 miles of me uh, during that time period in Louisville. And John and his wife did, and I'll, for, I'll be forever thankful for that. And it was really tremendous that not only did he not suffer from that, uh, it's possibly might have even benefited in some way. <laughs> At least there's no evidence that he suffered, and he's, he's won nothing but landslide victories ever since, despite uh, my friendship with him. So I guess the, the bright side is that there is some small hope uh, for, for humanity. It's not large, but it does exist. Um, but anyway, so that, that is definitely one of, I hope I have I've, I've been able to remember and encompass uh, the, the most important parts of that story, and I hope you got something out of it. Uh, I wanted to make sure that there was a record of it, depending on how many more of these podcasts we do, because, you know, I'm getting on in age, and, you know, now, now in my 50s, I might start to forget uh, little details. So at least there's a record of this. Uh, but if anybody's interested, this would make one hell of a movie. <laughs> this story would make one hell of a movie, because I, I didn't even, you know, get into all the incredible details Uh, of the trial. So if you're interested, make sure you contact me. But regardless, more importantly, I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I enjoyed uh, providing that story to you. Well, and that's uh, that. That's it for this uh, hour number two of the World According to Zig podcast. Make sure that you check out freespeechbroadcasting.com for all my most recent articles and hour number one for our news of the week. We will be doing a podcast next week, although we'll be off the following week for Christmas, and then we'll do a year wrap-up the final weekend of the year. As always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, uh, please make sure you share this via Twitter, Facebook, or word of mouth, what have you. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who's, who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. 
What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.